Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge, where I have with me Matt Hawkins, the Chief Operating Officer of Top Cow, as well as the President of Top Cow, and the creator and mastermind behind the Edenverse. So thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I love comics and I love talking about comics. I mean, you've been involved in comics for about 20 years now. So what initially got you into comics? Whenever I talk about my origin story, and I call it that because it's comics, you know, but whenever I get into how I got into the business, it always pisses a few people off because I was not really a reader of comics. I was going to college. I was working on my physics degree and I was working at a bank, kind of paying my way through school. And my nephew asked me to take him to this comic book store signing. And it was Rob Liefeld's appearance at Maha Comics in Anaheim when that store opened and when Image launched. And so I went to this signing and stood in line for three hours. A couple artists were in front of me. One of them got hired on the spot when they finally got to the front of the line. And I just caught up in the moment of seeing these young guys with these Extreme Studios jackets on with all these really cute girls and looked like they're having the time of their lives. And I hated working at the bank. So I was the next guy. And I asked Rob, I said, hey, are you looking for anyone to do anything else? And he said, we need someone to write releases and do letters pages can you do that and i said yes i had no fucking idea how to do any of that but i bought a book on how to write a press release wrote a press release for him as an example he hired me the next day and i've been in comics now for 24 years and that's probably the most unorthodox story that has ever been told on my podcast <laughs> so coming into the business and seeing all this how did you adjust and react considering that you didn't really have that background it was weird for me because i was working on my master's degree in physics i had intended to go into sort of the military industrial complex like my father and my sister. And it was very foreign to me. As a little kid, I'd read Daffy Duck and Donald Duck and some of that stuff, but I didn't know who any of these people were. So I didn't know who Todd McFarlane or Jim Lee, they didn't mean anything to me. And I didn't know who Stanley was. I didn't know who any of these people are. And then within a year, I found myself editing Alan Moore and stuff like that. So it's really kind of a bizarre arc. I feel like now I know what I'm doing, but I don't feel like I knew what I was doing back then. And we kind of had the luxury of being able to fail at everything because the numbers were so strong. Now you fail, you're done. You make one mistake and you're out of business. But back then, we fucked up shit all the time, and sales just kept coming in. That's the early image boom. And now coming into this, you're on track to complete your master's. You wanted to go into the military, industrial complex, entire industry. What did the people around you feel like, and how did they react when you were going into the comic book field? My parents thought I was a little crazy. I didn't really tell a lot of people what I was doing. When I was at school, I was going to class and lab. I was teaching undergraduate class. That was 40 hours a week. And then I was also working 40 hours a week. I continued for the first two years of extreme and image, I continued on with my college because I wanted to finish. I did finish. I got my master's degree. So I did not have a lot of free time between going to school full time and working full time. And then when I started working with Liefeld at Extreme, the convention traveling became a lot. So my life for those first few years was kind of difficult. And then when I finished with school, image was just doing so well. You know, I'm 47 now. I've been in image for a long time. And I look back and every year I get those social security reports and I look at 1994 and that's the most money I've ever made in my life. I was just this punk ass kid that didn't know what the fuck he was doing. But we were making tons of money. God damn, I wish I could go back and relive those times knowing what I know now because I'd be a multi-multi-billionaire. You know, you live and learn. And now you just mentioned the con scene and how you were going to all these cons. What was it like with the early image boom at conventions? Well, the con scenes in the 90s was very different because we didn't have movies there. There were not movie actors. You'd have the occasional B-porn chick that would go there and sell friends of herself, but there was no cosplay. So it was very different, and it wasn't as gender-friendly as it is now. It was a lot of dudes. And now that I'm an older guy, like I wish I was in my 20s now, just the amazing, really cute girls go to these cons now. They were not around when I was in my 
20s. But it was just all about comics. The good thing in the 90s is the cons were only about comics. You went to a comic convention, it was about comic books, and that was all it was about. You went there because you wanted to meet John Byrne, you wanted to talk to Jim Lee, and the fans were very compatible and accessible. You could talk to the people that you liked their books. There were panels. It was pretty cool. Then uh, episode one happened, and Lucas bought all that space at San Diego. And ever since then, it's changed. I identify that as the changing point. Because ever since that happened, all the studios buy a lot of space. There's this whole cottage industry now of actors doing signings at these conventions. And the vast majority of the people that come to these comic book conventions now don't read comics. I would say 90 to 95% of them have no interest in comics whatsoever. It's good and it's bad. It's good because there's possibly people there that you can reach that you wouldn't otherwise reach. But when you're an independent comic person selling original content that mainstream people might not be aware of, it's kind of a waste of time trying to talk to someone that doesn't read comics, you know? If they're going to try something, it's going to be a Batman book, not a Think Tank book. So I like New York Comic Con the way they separate out the Artist Alley, and I like Emerald City Comic Con the way they separate out the Artist Alley, because the people that actually go into the Artist Alley areas, they're separated from the main floor and on the autographs for the celebrities. So the people that actually make the attempt to get there are fans. So you know that you can talk to them, and there's actually a point to talking to them. I've done some conventions where I've been there for three days, eight hours a day, and talked to thousands of people, and then saw a lot of books. And then I'll be to some of the smaller shows where I'll talk to maybe a hundred people over the course of a day or two, and I'll sell far more product. I tend to like the smaller shows are the ones that have these isolated artist alleys. It's very different now. The business is so different now than what it was when I started. It's almost like it's not the same business. And to even talk further about that, as a independent creator, which you mentioned that you are, how do you feel that cosplay has even affected the industry along with all the film and everything else? And how do you continuously push out your stuff that you create? Cosplay, I think, has been good for us because we have characters that are recognizable and people cosplay as. So for us, it's been fine. I've heard complaints from various people about cosplay, but people are enjoying expressing interest and love for these characters, and I'm fine with it. It can be aggravating when some guy with eight-foot wings stands in front of your booth for an hour, and no one can come up and talk to you. I usually go up and just have a quick conversation. Hey, can you just move five feet over so I can sell my books? And they're usually pretty cool about it. I think people just get excited, and cosplay's been fun. We get people that dress up as Witchblade, as Aphrodite 9. We get a lot of Madame Mirage characters from the Paul Dini book, that main sort of one that he based on his wife. And there's guys that'll dress up as Jackie Escada from The Darkness. So we have a few characters that people recognize and they'll dress up as. And that's always fun for that. You know, doing comics now, it's honestly about sampling. If someone doesn't read your books, you have to give them something to read to see if they'll actually like it. So I give away about 1,500 books every convention I go to. They're just Think Tank number one or Tide number one, one of the books I have. I try to give a lot of them out on Fridays and I basically tell the people, you know, you're going to get stuck in a line, get a chance to read this, come back Saturday or Sunday and come let me know if you like it. If they come back, they usually buy stuff, you know. They don't come back for another reason. And so that works. Let's say 5 to 10% of the people that I give those books to come back and at least talk to me, Mike try something else and I've gotten a lot of really good feedback from that I also do little postcards that have little digital QR code PDF links they can download and read for free as well so I'm a big believer in sampling it's very hard to get someone to try something new and pay for it if you've not heard of it it's not like movies where you can show trailers and you can be oh that's fucking cool I mean you can but people don't watch them there have been a lot of people that have made comic book trailers but no one watches them and now this is fascinating all about the con scene but I kind of want to dive into some of your early career how you started out more in press releasing and then as an editor what was that experience like for you at the start of the image boom it was a little nutty i think it worked well for me that i didn't know who any of these people were because i'd be working with guys like del keown and i would just treat him like whoever i mean del keown alan moore was the same to me as some guy off the street and i was not a huge comic fan so in a weird way because i didn't fanboy out on these guys they sort of respected me more i think because i was a physics guy 
I physics is basically math. So I was really good at math and accounting and could do some of these things. And I helped people out with some budgeting and things on books. But I thought I was decent at marketing. I was able to chat with people, friendly guy. I think part of it's just using common sense, which seems to be something that seems to be lost. You know, try to find out what's going to make someone try something. You know, a lot of times I'll just ask people. Like I have a pretty decent sized social media following. And part of that is just because I talk about things that are interesting. Like I talk about things that are interesting to me and try to engage people on things I think might be interesting to them. And some of that stuff is controversial, some of it's not. Some of it's me playing with Facebook or Twitter's algorithms on how they work. But ultimately, I'm in the entertainment business. And that people follow comic book creators, you either read a comic character that you're into, like you love Batman, or you love Warren Ellis. One or the other, usually. You either love a character or you love a creator. And you follow those people for that reason. And I think Mark Miller, Robert Kirkman, and some of these guys have really sort of paved the way for guys like me because I've looked at what they do and how they interact with the industry and the fan base and what they do. And you live and learn. Pick and choose things from different people that work and try them out, see what works for you. And now some of the early people that you worked with have really influenced and changed image, including Eric Stefferson and Rob Liefeld. What did you pick up from both of these guys while working with them and around them? Rob has an infectious enthusiasm that's kind of hard to uh, dim. The one thing I love about Rob more than anything is I've never seen a guy get more hate and rise above it and continue on than that guy. I've seen people get in his face and tell him he sucks. I've heard people at conventions when I worked for the guy tell him how much they hated his artwork and it would get to him sometimes. You could see that when it would get to him, but he would always take the high road for the most part. Sometimes he would engage and sometimes he would do it. Sometimes he would do that just for, honestly just for fun. And I worked with Rob from 92.3 to 96.7 because I worked with him through Extreme Maximum Press and Awesome Comics. And then when Awesome Comics went down, I went off on my own, did Lady Pendragon through Image and then came into Top Cow in 98. I've been here ever since. But Eric Stevenson was always just a very smart guy, a very writer-oriented. He had an English background. He went to school for English. I was not an English major. I was not a literature person. So I was sort of a numbers and sense kind of guy. And we're very different people. I like Eric quite a bit. I think he's a very smart guy and he has really smart tastes. And he's a good writer. If you look at Rob Liefeld, me and Eric Stevenson, we're all three very different people. But I think at the time, we kind of complemented each other well. I think what we needed that we lacked was someone with a strong business sense that would tell us no. Because the problem, I think, with Extreme Studios in the beginning was we still whatever we wanted. And Rob wanted to build a spaceship, so he built a quarter million dollar spaceship, Youngblood Battlecruiser, that we toured around to Chicago and to LA and New York. And that cost millions of dollars by the time it was all said and done. And after having it for a year, it was useless. It's now a fixture at a paintball park. Guys would do these crazy things for fun just because they wanted to do it. And I think everyone just assumed that the money train would last forever because the money was insane. I think Rob made like $20 million in 1993 that year alone. So when you're making that kind of money, it's hard to listen to people from the outside telling you, hey, you need to pay attention, you need to do this, you need to watch your bottom line, and it all caught up to us eventually. You just mentioned Lyfield was making close to $20 million one year. Why do you think that the money changed so much? Well, I think a lot of it was fake sales. I think people were speculating and buying cases of Youngblood, cases of Spawn. There's people I know, I talk to retailers all the time who tell me that there are fans that will come in with an entire case of an early image book trying to sell it. And they laugh because they have that same case in their warehouse already. And so there was just so many of these books. There was a lot of speculation going on. In the early 90s, when I started in 93, the first time I saw a comic book retailer count, there were over 10,000 stores in North America in English, in the United States and Canada. And we're down under 3,000 
thousand now, probably less. Eighty percent of our books are ordered by only eight hundred stores. So the other fifteen hundred or whatever buy the other twenty percent. So a very small number of stores that are propping up the majority of the comic industry. You know, eight hundred to a thousand stores versus ten thousand twenty years ago. So there's been a severe decline in the retail base. Part of that was because there were so many people speculating. If you were a retailer and you speculated on a bunch of books that eventually a couple years later were worthless, then you went out of business. And now to kind of shift back into some of what you wrote, and you mentioned it, which is Lady Pendragon. How did this book come about? Lady Pendragon was more of just something I wanted to do for fun. I had been working as an editor for a while and did Bowser Galactica Evangeline, and I was an editor for a line of books that did pretty well, and then I wanted to write this book. One of the things I did during college just for fun was I always played Dungeons & Dragons when I was a kid, and I really liked that game. Played it in the 80s and had a group of friends, and I still play it with that same group of friends. So it's like Help Thumbs Online. We're all spread out across the world now. But I was always the game master. And so I was creating these worlds and I loved sword and sorcery and fantasy. And I loved the movie John Borman's Excalibur. I thought about that movie and I always wondered what would happen if Percival wasn't able to return Excalibur to the Lady of the Lake. What if it was still on the battlefield? And then when the nunnery came the next day, cleaning up the battlefield, maybe what if the sword called out to Guinevere and then suddenly Guinevere had the sword? And how would that affect things and where would it go from there? So I just had a weird idea. It kind of came to me in a dream, really, that she pulled the sword from the stone. And then I had another story on later that I did that was a present day storyline where her descendant pulled the sword from the stone in the present and it caused magic to return to earth and all the magnetic energy left so the world was blacked out but magic returned and that was kind of fun and that was Lady Pendragon I did that book for two years one of the lucky things for me and my position and what I'm able to do is I kind of get to write what I want to write I don't have to run around begging for jobs from different publishers so I get to pick projects I want to do and I get to work with really good artists which is pretty cool and Lady Pendragon came before Witchblade and some of what Witchblade deals with is similar to Lady Pendragon. How do you feel how Lady Pendragon might have influenced Witchblade? I think they actually came out right about the same time, and they're very different. You can't take credit for using Excalibur, but Arthur has been done to death. So I don't think I don't really see the similarity between Witchblade and Lady Pendragon. And then another book that wrote was Alley Cat. That was Ali Baggett, who was a lingerie model for Penthouse. Beautiful girl. When I mentioned that there were sometimes these girls that would come to the conventions and sell pictures of themselves, she was one of those girls. And I always noticed that she had a massive line, and it was this cross-cultural appeal. I think she's half Filipino, half white, I think is what she is. And so white guys liked her, black guys liked her, Asian guys liked her, Latin guys liked her. Everybody liked this girl. And I saw that her just massive appeal to everyone. So I approached her about developing a character around her. And then we worked with her. It was fun. We did 14 issues. I don't know how many we did. But the idea that we were going to try to develop a low-budget movie with her in it kind of thing, that never happened. But the comic was fun. It's out there. And how do you feel that being that she was a lingerie model and she had this massive appeal, how do you feel that affects comics and when comics go and start entering that territory of other mediums? I think it's always been that way, really. There was a Batman TV show on in the 60s. There were all those TV serials. To me, comics are storytelling, and there's been various versions of storytelling for millions of years, probably. And people like to be told stories, whether it's sitting around a campfire, whether it's film, virtual reality, augmented reality, whatever it could be. There's always going to be an audience for storytelling in one format or another. I think comics and visual depictions has sort of a special place in everyone's hearts because you could tell stories cheaply. One nice thing about a comic book is you can actually tell a story fairly inexpensively with a high sense of spectacle. Now with special effects being as cool as they are, 30 years ago the only place you could see a guy throwing a planet was in a comic book. Now you can see it, but those are still very expensive movies to make. Comics I think sort of speak universally. And you got to do a very cool project with Lady Pendragon and Alley Cat. You got to write a crossover. What was that like taking an original character and then taking a character based off of a real life model? 
The fact that the Alley Cat character was based off of Alley Baggett didn't affect really anything other than we did a photo cover. She didn't really give us any input on the storyline. She wasn't really that character. It was not based on her, based on a fictitious character within the storyline. didn't even carry her name. It was no different than anything else, really. And then I want to focus on something that you wrote in the early 2000s, which was Blood Legacy, the story of Ryan, which was based off of a book. How did this all come about? My sister wrote the books. And actually, she wrote the comics. I edited and worked with her on that, but my sister actually wrote those. She wrote the Blood Legacy novels, and then I helped put them out as comic books for her to try to help draw, drive people to buy her novels. And she's done nine or ten novels now, and they're all available on Kindle and through Amazon. Top Cow never owned that character. I never owned it. I just did that as a favor for my sister. And now, what I really want to talk about is the Edenverse and everything that you've done with that because that's what people love and I think that's what a lot of what you're known for is Think Tank, Postal, Tilth and many others that have come out. So obviously the first one that really came out and it's still going strong is Think Tank which focuses on Dr. David Lauren and his interactions as a weapon designer with government in various situations he's in. How did you initially come up with this idea? Yeah, I don't really remember how I first came up with it, but I just remember I sat down and I wanted to do a story about a scientist and Raphael, or Raphael, Rasan Ekadal just finished Echoes for us and was looking for a project to do. And I just sat down and wrote out a basic treatment of most of my ideas. I just sit down and I'll have just an idea. I'll be like, okay, what about this guy? Part of Think Tank, if I remember correctly, was some friends of mine who were still working in the military and some of the projects they were working on. One of them had given me a recently declassified weapons manual. The idea of it was it was this machine that was mounted on the front of naval vessels and it shot 30,000 bullets a second in this giant wall of shrapnel that would be thrown up to take out incoming missiles at point blank range. And that system is called Metal Storm. It's about 20 years old now, but 10 years ago when I got the operating manual, I was reading through it and it's all about how the point blank defense and all these sort of things. And then there was this footnote that went to the back and it said it's also really good for crowd control. And I was like, oh shit. So imagine some guy puts a giant thing on the back of a 4x4 truck, drives it into the center of Dodger Stadium, you put it on a swivel mount, you spin the thing and you fire it three or four seconds and you killed everyone in the entire thing in three seconds. It's not like a bomb. I mean, there are videos in YouTube. You Google or search for Metal Storm. It'll show you. It was originally an Australian manufactured weapon system that the U.S. government contracted and bought and it's a really interesting system. There's no gunpowder. It's electrified. And so I just started doing a lot of reading and research. And there was a book I read called Wired for War. which PJ Singer wrote, who was a former defense contractor. And then I just started writing. Got ideas and started writing and developed out Think Tank. And seven years later, I'm working on the fifth volume. And when you're researching all this technology and declassified weapons and possibly other weapons that might be current or might not be, is there ever any concern it might be interpreted wrong or it might not be declassified? Is there anything that like that goes through your head? I've talked to the FBI twice. I started writing again in the last 10 years. First time was after Think Tank 3 when there was something in there about 3D printing of surveillance flies. Tom Clancy was investigated by the FBI after he wrote Hunt for Red October because he had described the inside of a nuclear submarine too accurately. And when they interrogated him, they realized that he just assumed it would be like that. I remember that with one agent where he said, everyone's fine with all the writers that do this kind of work. The problem is when you get into applications and stuff like this. This is something I was thinking about the other day because all these terrorist attacks happening all over the world, I've often been very thankful. I mean, I know it might seem weird, but I'm I'm thankful that terrorists are so stupid because I could easily kill 100 million people in California, easily. It's not that hard to wipe out a massive amount of people if you have the wherewithal and access to a few things. You can create chlorine clouds. You go to 100 different Home Depots and buy a bunch of chlorine, you can create a chlorine bomb that would wipe out 100,000 people in seconds. And this is all stuff you need to buy at Home Depot. I'm very thankful that terrorists are pretty stupid, actually.
And a lot in Think Tank is going on with David and his life and dealing with the government and all this technology. And I think volume four and volume five, which you're working on, which is currently being pushed out, we're starting to get into a darker and further personal aspect of his life. How do you go and keep it so fresh? every volume. Every volume, I try to have one technological story, I try to have one geopolitical story, and then I try to have one personal emotional relationship story. And I try to intertwine those three together so that the stories all work together. And usually it starts with me discovering what the technological story is. And that's honestly just stumbling across stuff while I'm doing research. I usually get the ideas for books while I'm working on other books. I got the idea for Think Tank 5 when I was working on Think Tank 4. I got the idea for Think Tank 4 when I was working on Tithe Volume 1. So you sort of figure these things out as you develop. I keep notes and I write in journals and have tons of ideas. I write stuff on little yellow pads all the time. I'll see it a year later and I'll be like, oh, that's a good idea. And I'll forget that it was mine. But it's just developing out and figuring stuff out. The advantage I have is with my scientific background, I can read science journals. You know, I can read Nature Magazine. I can read Scientific American. Not as well as I used to, but most people, particularly comic book writers, can't read the physics journals. And I can sort of dig through that stuff and read it. I skim it, to be honest. I mean, most of it's boring and ridiculous, but I'll skim through a 100-page PDF and find the two sentences that inspire some ideas. Volume 5 of Think Tank was when I was researching for Volume 4, I found out how the Russians were using drones for surveillance. And the reason why they were doing that was because they knew that if you had a drone follow someone around, it would freak them out. Like if you had some drone following you around, you saw the same drone four or five times in the course of a day, it would freak you the fuck out. It would freak me the fuck out. However, if you just saw some crows as you walked out to your car, you saw a crow. As you were at the park, you saw another crow. It wouldn't even occur to you that it's the same crow. And crows are very smart. They have facial recognition. They also have memory. One of the things I love about crows, it's just mind-boggling. They have generational memory. So if you piss a crow off and he knows you and he hates you, his offspring that have never met you will hate you too. That sort of animal generational memory is fascinating because humans don't have that. And I'm fascinated by that. So once I started thinking about the Russians and these crows, I started looking into technology and hackers and everything going on today. A lot of governments are using old school spy techniques to do things like drops. If you write something on a piece of paper, stick it under somebody's car, there's really no chance anyone one's going to hack it. You know what I mean? And then once you read it, you can eat it or you can burn it and then there's no record of it. Versus if you email anything, it's permanent. It's out there. Someone has it somewhere. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on because of the age of technology and I think there's so much fertile ground there for story. So I try to figure out what that technology story is. Then I figure out some geopolitical arena that'll be affected by that. And now obviously the Russia, Estonia, Lithuanian, Latvian, Ukrainian, all that stuff is fascinating. It's in everyone's minds. You know, I started working on this two years ago before Trump was even running and now now it's so funny that it's such a big part of what's going on right now. And then I started researching other animals and realized that pigs are smarter than dogs and little things you learn when you're out talking to people. And one of the things I do is I don't just read. I actually reach out because a lot of times these books sell 500 copies and I'll be one of the few people that read it. And I go to these people's Twitter feeds and they have 300 followers. But the 300 followers are, you know, Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. You have these heavy hitter followers. I've done that quite a bit, actually. I went through Bill Gates' list of who he was following and went and looked at all these people and anyone that had less than a few hundred followers, I followed them back and, and kind of engaged them and have gotten to meet a lot of people that way because people want to talk to writers because they want their field to be portrayed accurately. And I'm sure you've heard of a lawyer saying he hates legal shows or a cop saying she hates cop shows or whatever. People hate everything. Even little things as how the entertainment portrays morgues. I've been to the LA morgue several times. That's nothing like what we see on television. It's far more horrifying. <laughs> I'm always amazed when I go to a real morgue. They always have like the open area with little pull-out slates, but that's a very small part of it and that's only the public part. 
court. Go past that in another room and there's stacks of bodies and body bags that are 10 feet high with toe tags on it. You go around the corner and there looks like there's a bunch of shelving for books or whatever it is and you realize these are where all the dead kids are and you see their little feet hanging out of the end of the shelves. It's just fucking horrifying. And then you get into other rooms where there are body parts that are unidentified and like here's a stack of hands, here's a stack of feet. It's not pretty and clean like we're used to seeing on television where someone gets pulled out of the little drawer and they make an identification. It's not like that at all. And I think this is a perfect segue right into the fact that you give a realistic depiction in Think Tank about a lot of things that can occur and that are actually probable. And I mean, you just describe the morgue and all of that, and you go to these different sites, and I would imagine you go to military bases and other areas. Why'd you choose to go with a more realistic look in a comic book? Part of that's because everyone does superheroes, and I wanted to do something a little more realistic, and I wanted to do something that was a little more realistic, and I knew that I could. I'm kind of a sucker for authenticity. You know, I think part of the reason why Sunstone and some of these books do as well for us as they do is because they have an air of authenticity about it. There's plenty of people that do all kinds of different comic books. But why does Sunstone work when so many other books in that genre don't? Well, it's because Cedric, obviously, and him and his wife are into S&M, and they know it, and they portray it in a positive manner, and they use a lot of things that make sense to the people that are into these sort of things. It's the same thing. I have a lot of people that read Think Tank that are scientists, and I always ask these guys for opinions and feedback. Honestly, it's just what I like to do. I don't think I'd write a very good Superman. I'm writing a Think Tank novel now because I've had so many people tell me that my writing would lend itself better to prose than it does to comics. I've been in comics for so long that I'm used to this medium. So I am giving it a try. I've seen a few comic book guys go off and write some novels and I'm going to try see how it works. And another thing about Think Tank is that it's in black and white. Well, the first three volumes are black and white. Volumes four and five are in color. So with the first three, why did you take the black and white route versus having a color route? Because we didn't think it would sell. When I did the first volume, I only ever intended it to be a single volume. It was only when the first volume was coming to a close that I realized people were actually liking it and reading it. It was getting really well reviewed. So Rasan and I decided to continue it, and then we did the second and third volumes. And then he wanted to take a break from that and do something else. That's when he and I did the tithe with Samaritan and crew. And we did that one in color. So then when we came back to Think Tank Volume 4, he just colored it himself. And Think Tank Volume 5 is in color and did that. So, I mean, initially, there weren't a lot of books out there like Think Tank in 2010 when I launched it. And so when that came out, black and white is cheaper than color. You don't have to pay a colorist. You don't have to pay color printing. And now the fan base is big enough to where it warrants it. I kind of actually missed the black and white. I went to color. I had enough people tell me that they wouldn't read it because it was black and white. So that's why we switched to color, just to try it. And you went in thinking it was only going to be one volume, which is four issues around there, right? Yeah. How does it make you feel that there was such a positive reaction to it that you had to basically write more? Every time you do something that's positive, I'm making a decent living doing this, so I really enjoy what I do. I consider myself fortunate. I know a lot of people that don't like their jobs. Ultimately, I enjoy what I do, and for me, doing the research is fun. Everyone always says, write what you know. I always say, write what you want to know, because for me, doing the research is kind of fun. I like to learn. I like to read, and I like to pick topics to write about that I don't know much about, because then it forces me to learn about it. Like, I'm doing a book called The Clock Now, which is about cancer research and immunotherapy and i'm doing another book called stairway which is about the genetic research into what is in junk dna and things like that so i have kind of a science thing i kind of do what interests me and i try to make interesting stories about them so that's kind of my mo and now think tank five is coming out in single issues what can fans expect to occur well that's think tank animal is about the use of animals in military and using animals as suicide bombers the idea of using a crow for surveillance is kind of fun but you actually then strapped a piece of 
around that crow's neck, had it remotely land on someone's shoulder that it knew it was looking for. I don't know how you would defend against that. I guess you could try to shoot it. Let's say the president is standing in the rose garden outside. If you had a bird just dive bomb down on the president and then someone remotely detonated C4 around the guy's neck, it would blow the president's head off. So how would you defend against that? So there's all kinds of opportunities. And I sort of developed out quite a few things that animals could do and sort of interlaced story. And so this one wraps up. I don't think Tank Volume 6 probably won't be out till late 2018. For the first time, I'm wrapping up Think Tank Volume 5 because issue 3 already came out. Issue 4 will be out in about three or four weeks. And I actually don't know what to do with Think Tank Volume 6 yet, but I've got quite a bit of time to figure it out. So I've never actually finished one volume without knowing what the next volume would be. So this is a first for me, but Think Tank Volume 5 is probably the best one yet. And the interpersonal stuff between David and his girlfriend and his dad and his sister he never knew he had and all these sort of things. It's got a lot of the emotional heartstrings and stuff that's fun to play with. And now to continue to talk about the Eden verse, I guess that's what it is, right? Brian Hill used to call it the Hawkins verse, but I hated that because it was more than just me working on it. So we created what we called the Eden's verse once we did Eden's fall. Eden's fall was sort of the idea was to do that crossover between stories. And so that's when the Eden verse came into being. There was no Eden verse when Think Tank came out. And then when Postal launched, those two books were not connected. It was only the tithe, really, at the end of the first volume and then into the second volume, especially, where we started linking in Think Tank, Postal, and the tithe. So those three all coalesced. And then Eden's fall was part of that. And then Samaritan, which is coming out now, another book I'm doing, is just a continuation of the tithe. And now I kind of want to talk about Postal, because what I find interesting about Postal is it's dealing with a bunch of criminals in a small town, Eden in Wyoming, and one of the main characters has Asperger's. How did you come up with this idea? Why did you choose Asperger's? And how do you feel that this entire comic has developed? One of my college roommates had Asperger's. And having dealt directly with people with Asperger's before it was called Asperger's, I don't even know if they had a diagnosis for it, but every scientist in the military industrial complex is probably somewhere on the spectrum. And these people are brilliant and they are doing things that make our lives better. And yet we treat them like they're idiots. And that drives me nuts. And I wanted to do a story where you accurately portray someone on the spectrum and show what they think and how they act. So Brian and I did a lot of research and Brian Hill is sort of obsessed with psychology the same way I'm obsessed with science. And I know that Brian actually reached out to some mothers of children with Asperger's and got on the phone and talked to them on Skype. So we did tons of research and then developed that out. I mean, the idea of having a town where bad guys can hide out, run by bad guys, where there's a rule with no crime. I always loved TV shows like Northern Exposure and Twin Peaks. I haven't seen the new Twin Peaks yet, but I love those shows. So Postal, we decided to develop it as Northern Exposure meets Twin Peaks with small town quirky characters and the idea that everyone in town is a bad guy is kind of fun. And then is Mark a good guy? Is he not? And then for him having the only real government job, it's an interesting story. The Hulu deal that we're developing that as a TV show won't know until August whether it officially gets picked up or not. But that's more of a two-hander between the mayor and Mark. It's not just about Mark. Postal was a labor of love. The first volume of Postal was pretty much an outline I had written for a TV spec. I was going to spec that out as a TV pilot, and I wasn't planning on doing it as a comic. I wrote that well before I wrote Think Tank or anything. My manager basically said, you got this lead character who's Asperger's, you're doing these weird things, this is a tough sell, why don't you go ahead and do it as a comic, then you can show them what it looks like. So we did it as a comic. So the first volume is basically the TV pitch I wrote. And then the second volume was kind of the continuation of that. And then at that point, I was working on so many different things, and Brian Hill had a lot of ideas for Postal. Third, fourth, and fifth volumes are written by him without me, really. So I sort of set up the world and the universe and just kind of watched him play in it, which is kind of fun. 
how hard was it for you to leave a comic and how much input do you still have in that comic, if any? It wasn't hard to leave it off because I was doing too many projects. It's sometimes it's difficult to let go, but I worked on enough projects and I trust Brian. So he had some very specific ideas of where he wanted to go, which were not really where I would have gone. But I just kind of let him do it. I trust the guy. I trust the creative team. I thought he did great dialogue and he works with me. He's one of the few guys that I actually take notes from. I respect that gives me notes that I know are good. Brian gives me really good notes and I follow them always. He's become a writing partner, friend slash editor that I work with with and published his book Romulus. He's got other books he's doing. He's written a couple things for Marvel too, but he's one of those guys, even if I'm not working with him anymore, I just want to call him a friend because he's so smart. I love talking to smart people and there are a handful of people I know that every time I sit down and talk to them, I feel like I learned something and he's one of those guys. And then the third in this entire set is, and I might be saying it wrong, is the tilt? The tithe. Yeah, I didn't realize that I grew up a Southern Baptist kid, so and I'm an atheist now, but so I grew up my whole life knowing that you give a tithe. That's the 10% of the money you give to the church. And I'd heard that word since I was a little bitty kid, so I didn't realize how many people have never heard that word before. And that's very common, by the way. I get people coming up and asking me about the tith, which is why the new volume is called Samaritan, actually, because I didn't realize that people didn't know that word. And all it means, if you look up the tithe, it's means 10% that you're supposed to give of your income to the church. That's all it means. And that story, I always wanted to do a heist story. I like movies like The Town, but I didn't want to do another sort of bank robbery or armored car robbery because there's so many of these things. So I started doing research on where there were tons of cash so I could do sort of a cool heist story. And I came across some of these mega churches had millions and millions of dollars a year they were generating in cash. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I sort of developed the story out because I didn't want it to seem like anti-religious. I mean, I'm not religious anymore, but my parents are still very religious. My sister's very religious. So I don't want to piss off my family. And you don't want to piss people off if you want to sell books. So I developed out a story where churches that they were hitting, the reason why they were hitting them was because they were under investigation from the FBI for fraud. Basically, these mega churches tell evangelists and everyone says these people are scum. And then Samaritan is basically this hacker who steals money from these churches and gives it charity. So it's kind of a modern day Robin Hood, kind of a social justice thing. And that's where the story sprang from. And then I had two FBI agents that were after her. One was Jimmy Miller, who was this young sort of hacker guy, cocky and self-assured. The other one was this older black guy who was a family man and a Christian. And so it was kind of fun to have Dwayne, who was the black guy, talk to Jimmy, the white guy, because they're both really me. I was talking about me when I was a Christian versus me when I'm not a Christian. And I had these interesting conversations with myself from different points in my life. And that was quite entertaining, actually. And this comic in its second arc took a very different turn dealing with election fraud and terrorists and fake attacks which is very house of cards like season five as well as it's very modern of what happened in the 2016 election and what's going on with all of that recently so how do you feel because that was written before all of this happened how do you feel that it's now a reality to some degree it is really kind of weird that's happened to me a few times part of it is i'm trying to think of things that are kind of crazy and interesting and they seem to become reality part of it is i get stuff from the science journal stuff i get and i read by the time it comes out into the regular press it's a year or two later so it seems like I'm fresh, but I'm really not. Some of this stuff, I pay attention to the news. I read The Economist magazine. I read a lot. So I'm very attuned to a lot of things that are going on. I also have friends all over the world. I'm not xenophobic. I've been all over the world, been to the Middle East. I've met people of every faith and all over the world. When you travel a lot, it opens your mind to a lot of things. And I watch the BBC News. I watch Al Jazeera. So I'll flip around and get different news sources to get different perspectives. And then by doing that, it sort of allows me to write things that I think are relevant. So for me, one 
what I'm trying to do is write things that are relevant. And I think because of the way I look, when the Ukraine thing happened, that's what spurned my thought process and really pushed me into doing the Russia-Estonian thing with Think Tank Volume 5. So it's me reacting to what's going on in the world. And if Russia is expanding and they're trying to push their borders, for me, I try to figure out, well, what are they trying to achieve? And then I'll go read a bunch of Russian press and read their propaganda. And then I'll read our propaganda. And then I'll realize the truth is somewhere in the middle. And you do enough of that, you can start guessing how people are going to spend things. Tide Volume 2, there's been Islamic terrorism going on now for a long time. And I just thought it'd be fun to put a spin on it to where you have these right-wing conservatives that are using Islamic terrorism to further their agenda. I don't know that I subscribe to too much conspiracy theory stuff, like 9-11 people and the truthers and all that. That to me is kind of a little crazy. But do I believe there are people that take advantage of terrorist attacks to get themselves re-elected? Well, we got George Bush the second time. People take advantage of situations all the time. Reagan, when he got into office. There's proof now that he had reached out directly to Iran and negotiated with them to wait so he could use the fact that Jimmy Carter was ineffective in getting the hostages released. There's all kinds of interesting things that are historical. I think if you go to Amazon and you pop in U.S. small military conflicts, there's a book that talks about all these little wars that have happened over the last hundred years that no one really knows about. All these times we invaded different countries, you find out why Venezuela hates us because we've executed their leaders and done all these things. So history is far more interesting sometimes than fiction. That's why I try to base so much of the stuff that I do on real events, real people, and real technologies and stuff like that, because I find it very interesting. And I think people are fascinated when they realize that there's some element of truth to it. And then all three of these books came at a central crossing point in Eden's Fall. What was the impetus to create that crossover? When I was finishing up Tide Volume 2, I actually had a more definitive ending originally intended for Tide Volume 2, where they were just going to kill the guy. And then in the middle of Tide Volume 2, there was a point where they needed to talk to somebody in the military that could help them with some quantum cryptology. And I realized I could either create someone or I could have them talk to David Lauren because it was more convenient. And David Lauren used to be a kid hacker, so he would probably probably have met Samaritan online at some point, so they knew each other. Because the inner circle of good hackers online, they all know each other. I don't know if you've ever been on the dark web and poked around down there. It's an interesting place to search around. I go on there about once a month and look around, and I don't post much of anything, but I just read. And it's always interesting to see what those guys are talking about. But between introducing that character, and then we decided at the end of Tide Volume 2 to have the bad guy go to Eden. Rather than being killed, he goes to Eden. So then our heroes from the Tide, they know the guy's alive. We've revealed that Postal that that town is somewhat protected by the FBI and that's why it's allowed to exist. And you have these people who decide they're going to go in and create their own kind of justice. So Eden's Fall was really about that. It was about, we're not going to let this guy get away with this. And that's directly led into Samaritan now because Samaritan, which is in effect Tide Volume 3, is her declaring war on the president and the United States government over what happened to Jimmy in Eden's Fall and what she considers the unfairness and inequity of the system. And obviously, I mean, a lot's going on in the Edenverse. So how does that all affect Samaritan, affect Postal, Think Tank moving forward? Is it going to be a third volume of the... It's called Samaritan. Samaritan's fine. I'm going to put out the Tide Volume 3, and it's going to be Samaritan, but that's only because I've already done the Tide Volumes 1 and 2. I wish I'd always call it Samaritan. But Samaritan, which is coming out now, is Tide Volume 3. And when I put it out as a trade, I'm going to put it out as Tide, colon, Samaritan, Volume 3. I don't know if there will be a Tide Volume 4. Maybe. We'll see. A lot of that depends on sales and various things. Tide Volume 3 pretty much wraps up a lot of that storyline, so I would need to do something different. I mean, I kind of wrote this with the intent of being the inclusive chapter. 
order. I think Postal Volume 8 will probably be the final volume of that run, which we have another seven or eight issues to get through. But whether we take a year off or two years off and then redo it, we do that quite a bit. There's so many new ideas and different things we want to do, but I've got 10 different projects I'm working on, so no shortage of work. And now what I like what you did with this entire comic, the Edenverse, you broke it into seasons, and many people sometimes get intimidated of a good jumping point. What do you recommend for a jumping point into any of your books? I think Samaritan 1, part of the reason why I did it that way was it was intended as a good jumping on point. It's toward the end of third season, if you want to call them that, of the Edenverse. But I think that's a good place. I mean, it'd be hard to jump at the Postal right now. You can pick up Think Tank Volume 5, Issue 1, and read it. I write it with enough of a recap. The character is the scientist. He's very smart. He's kind of a sarcastic, slacker, genius guy who doesn't want to do his job, but is compelled to do it because he's always tries to rise to the challenge. So they push his buttons and he gets shit done. Everyone kind of understands those sort of general characters character trope. So once you sort of identify that, that's more of a writing exercise, trying to figure out how do you write this to where people can jump in. The good thing, if you go to topcow.com in the lower right-hand corner of our webpage are about 50 free comics. First issues of tons of different series. First issue of the Tides, first issue of Postal, first issue of Think Tank. People can go on here and download and read them, see if they like it. And then you can find these things either on Amazon, Comixology, you can go order them through your comic store. All these books are in print and available. So you might as well start at the beginning. Go pick up Postal Volume 1 or Think Tank Volume 1. They are available. If you go on Comixology, you can be reading it in the next five minutes. If you order it from Amazon, you'll have it two, three days. You go to your comic shop, they might have it in stock. They might need to order it. All these books are available. And now we spoke a lot about the Edenverse, and I'm very curious. You've been writing comics. You've been in an executive position as the COO slash president of Top Cow for several years now. What advice do you have for people who want to get into comics and write comic books or draw comic books? The people that are getting hired to do gigs at Marvel and DC often are self-published it's not as hard as people think it is. I think most of the people that we've met and hired over the last few years either did a webcomic or we met them at a convention because they had a following, some sort of local following. And a couple times I've met people because I've pledged their Kickstarters. I'll see this person is running a successful Kickstarter, a comic book character and a creator I've never heard of. Suddenly this guy has $60,000 he's raised and he's got two more weeks on his Kickstarter. Then that interests me because as a publisher, I'm trying to mitigate risk and I'm trying to find people that have existing fan bases because this is a business and you have to sell books. So the only way to really break into the comic industry is to start building up a fan base on your own. And how do you do that? Well, the internet. You start publishing and putting content up on the internet. If you're a writer, you can find artists on DeviantArt, you find artists at comic conventions and make a partnership, put up a free comic, whether it's a weekly, a daily, or start to build a following and build up a Twitter following by posting stuff like that and talk about things that are interesting. Unfortunately, I think that's really the way it is. And I think it's very hard to become a comic book writer. It's very hard to break through that veil. And I kind of explain it where there are about 300 working full-time professional comic book writers. There are 900 people in the NBA. There's 1,200 people in the NFL. Not everyone thinks they can be a professional football player, but everyone seems to think they can be a professional comic book writer. And there's not a tremendous amount of opportunity for writers, especially because to continue out the sports analogy, what is the average NFL career? It's like four years. What's the average comic book writing career? It's 40 years. So I compete for gigs with guys like Chris Claremont. been writing since the 70s. So a lot of these people, Kurt Busiek, Mark Wade, they still write two, three, four books a month. And there's a lot of comics out. So here's the thing. The barrier to becoming a comic book person is smaller than it's ever been. But the barrier to making money is harder than it's ever been. Because there's so much product out there that a lot of fans, they'll never find out about you. And that's where you just got to market the hell out of yourself and do conventions and give out postcards with your name and your number on maybe a little piece of your artwork on it. For an artist, it's much easier because when artists submit work, I can see somebody's art. And in about two or three seconds, I'll know whether I'd want to hire them or not. It's very easy 
easy to look at someone's comic art and say, oh, this person is a professional. They are very close. I would love to work with this person. I just hired some guy in South Africa when I was out there last month. It's harder to be a writer and submit because no one wants to read it. I don't want to read people's scripts. I really don't because most of them suck. Most people aren't very nice about it. I know there are freelance editors out there. When people ask me to read their scripts, usually the reason is they want to know what I think about their work. And I will often tell them that you should hire a freelance editor. And sometimes people don't. I've done that where I've given people notes on their scripts before and they've gotten pissy with me. I think a lot of people don't want feedback. They actually want acceptance. They want to be told that they're great and here's your job. People are not very realistic about their chances or opportunities. I would say if you're not willing to put in at least five years, five years, try to get in and to build a following and to build a name, don't waste your time. Especially as a writer, it's not going to happen. There are so few people that break in, like Donnie Cates, who did a couple image books and now writing some Marvel work. He kind of blew up. It looks like he's an overnight success. You actually dig a little deeper. He's been doing it for five years. He's been publishing, self-publishing, writing, doing various things, doing conventions and built up. And now he's writing big books at Marvel and DC. It takes time. You got to build a following. It's why I do so many conventions a year. I'm doing 30 or 40 appearances a year where I'm handing out free books, shaking people's hands and telling them what my stories are about. And finally, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Facebook, Twitter, website, comics, free comics that are coming out, convention appearances that are about to happen? The best way to follow me is on Facebook. I'm pretty prolific on there. And my Facebook handle is just self-loathing narcissist. It's what my ex-wife called me when we got divorced, so I kept that name for fun. But if you go on Facebook and you type Matt Hawkins, the two main ones that come up are me and the South African rugby player. The huge blonde guy with all the tattoos that looks like he'd kill you, that's not me. The comic book guy with comic book shit behind him, that's me. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter, Top Cow Matt. Follow any of the Top Cow feeds. If you go to any of the social media platforms, there's Tumblr, there's Instagram, there's Pinterest, there's everything. So any of those platforms you want to go on, follow those feeds. I have multiple books coming out right now. I have a book called Samaritan, which the first issue just came out, and the third issue will be out about a month or two. Think Tank Volume Five, Animal Number Three just came out a few weeks ago. Number Four will be out in a couple weeks. I'm working on multiple titles. Golgotha, we just did a successful Kickstarter, will be out in the regular world in September. But the people that pledged to Kickstarter. That Kickstarter was funded and successful. Those people will get the digital copies next week and the uh, print copies in about a month. But I do San Diego Comic Con and then after that I'm doing a show in Denver and then I'm doing San Diego Comic Con. I'm doing Boston Comic Con. That's August. Beyond that I don't remember. Anything else? Read comics. Tell people to read more comics. It's an amazing art form and we need more readers. Try something from a creator you've never heard of. Doesn't need to be me. Just go on Comixology. They have tons of free comics you can download. Go to websites like Top Cow or imagecomics.com. There's plenty of free comics you can check out and support independent comics. Marvel and DC have a lot of great books, but those are giant megalithic corporations. They don't need your money as much as we do. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast, and we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitch Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode, you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime comics and pop culture, as well as give us a follow on Twitter at popanimecomics to stay up to date, as well as like our Facebook page, Pop Anime Comics. And we currently do have a Patreon up and going. It's Pop Anime Comics. It helps keep this podcast going strong each and every week, so definitely consider donating and if you can't donate i completely understand but feel free to write a review on itunes as it allows more people to know who we are and what amazing interviews we are bringing to you each and every week and until next week everybody have a wonderful week